chapter 4. As I was determining what to preach this evening, I determined, I decided to continue our treatment of the series in 1 Peter. And also, this passage gives special application to the end of the year as well. And so we're not going to have an old year service, but in a sense, this also gives us opportunity to reflect on the close of another calendar year. So we take as our text the last three verses of the chapter, 17 through 19. We read the entire chapter, 1 Peter chapter 4. We hear the word of God. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excessive wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another, Without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. And then here follow the words of our text. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing, as unto a faithful creator. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we come to the close of another calendar year, we're called to be thankful. 
We're to be thankful to God for everything that God has done for us. He's been good to us. And though He has led us through trials, through suffering and afflictions, we know it's for our good. Suffering and joy are often viewed as totally separate concepts. But Peter makes clear throughout this chapter, and he has throughout this epistle, that Christian joy is experienced in the way of suffering. The child of God, as he looks back on his life, notes that those times often of greatest spiritual growth, the times of greatest spiritual joy and closeness with God, were those times when he was experiencing trials and afflictions and troubles. Those are given as the seas and the billows of affliction which God uses to expose precious pearls and to cause us to rejoice and to be thankful in the blessings that He's bestowed upon us. Now the three verses that we look at tonight are very closely related. The statements found in verse 17 and 18 serve as the foundation on which the directions of 19 are based. First, there was intense persecution and hatred that was at hand for the church. And this was the case in Peter's day. And how much more in our day, as we get closer to the end, that persecution intensifies. But secondly, that persecution begins in the house of God, among the followers of Christ. The church bears the brunt of that persecution because she's the light in the midst of a dark, wicked world. But finally, the unbelievers melt away under that judgment. There's a judgment for the wicked that results in their destruction. There's no hope for the ungodly, no hope for the sinner. And we hear that warning, and we fall on our knees in repentance and sorrow. The end will be accompanied by suffering. That's the point of the passage. And we see signs of that judgment around us especially in the fact that increasingly individuals don't understand what it means that there are signs of the times or handwritings on the wall. That ignorance, perhaps, is one of the greatest signs as we see an ignorance with regard to God's Word and what to expect as the end gets closer. We again experience a year with unprecedented natural disasters. Natural disaster affecting weather patterns that create trouble and difficulty, so that scientists struggle with the fact that monthly statistics have less meaning, they're less reliable because of the major storms, the major weather patterns that, once again, we experience. And then there's war, the effects of war in the Ukraine, where Christians struggle with their basic needs as winter is upon them. There's the struggles and the difficulties of hardship and persecution that affect Myanmar, India, and many other nations throughout the world. We're reminded of the judgment that comes upon all things as all things come to an end. And the temptation for God's children is to despair, to throw up our hands and to say, it's too much. The troubles are too great. How will we ever be able to persevere? But God gives us hope, and God gives us encouragement, and God encourages us to press on, committing the keeping of our souls to Jehovah God, our Creator, and doing so in well-doing. And so we look at those 
concepts here. Committing the keeping of our souls to God. Noting the meaning, the urgency, and the peace. Committing the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. We read in verse 19. We seek to understand here what Peter is saying to us and what is it that Peter is implying. Is he implying that our salvation is up to us? That would contradict everything that he wrote previously in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 5, Peter directed us to the blessed hope, the confidence that is ours as believers. He directed us to the fact that the believer is kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Quite the opposite. The point here of the apostle is precisely to give hope to believers who are struggling. Believers who find themselves in the throes of hardship and troubles and difficulties. Knowing how weak we are. Knowing how inclined we are to give in to temptation. We would soon throw up our hands in despair and say, there's no sense in pressing on. Things are getting so difficult. Challenging is my life and the way that's required of me. And the apostle says, no, don't despair. Don't cast your hands up in desperation. Look to God. Look to the one who is the keeper of your souls, the one who will preserve you, and the one who is able to do so. So that the idea of kept here is that of a fortress that's heavily guarded and surrounded by bulwarks. The protection of the child of God is God and the attributes of God. God and His holiness and His righteousness and His faithfulness, His wisdom, His mercy, and all of the attributes of God constitute the protection of the church of Jesus Christ. The power of the Godhead surrounds the children of God. And the power of the Godhead is such that He preserves and He keeps every last one of His own. Never allowing them to suffer more than He has ordained. But directing everything according to His perfect counsel and plan for their good and for their salvation. Beloved, that's what we need to hear and that's what we need to believe as we come also to the close of another calendar year. God is keeping every last one of His children. He's doing so in marvelous ways, in ways beyond our comprehension, ways that at times we resist. But Jehovah God is faithful, and we confess that He is Lord, seated, Jesus Christ seated at God's right hand, directing all the course of our lives and all the course of nature, all the course of the nations to accomplish His perfect plan and power. And he's doing it in such a way that he's keeping, by his power, his children. Now the implication in this is that there's a need for that protection. There's an enemy constantly seeking to destroy us. There's the wicked world around us that we're well aware of, constantly scattering baits to try to draw us into temptation and to lure us into the paths of sin trying to tell us and trying to convince us. Communion with God? That's not precious. Communion with God? Walking in obedience to God? That's not something you should desire. Instead, come. Live it up. Walk in the ways of the devil. Those are the ways of joy and happiness. 
The devil constantly seeking to devour us. He seeks to get us to lower our guard, to give in to temptation, to live it up, and to walk with the wicked, and to party with the wicked, and to give ourselves over to the grossest of sins. And he seeks to make us walk as though we don't have a care in the world. Then we have that enemy within ourselves, our own sinful nature. And when we look at our sins, we need to confess the greatest enemy is within. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed of the thoughts that cross my mind, of the things that I act on at times. And I realize that I'm inclined to pursue the lie of the devil, even though I know better, even though I know God's word and I know God's commandments. I find his temptations appealing. And at times, I do just that. I give in. We cannot boast with the Arminian that we have kept ourselves in the faith. That's the boast of the Arminian. We know we can't go there. I've not kept myself in the faith. I can't keep myself in the faith. I am weak. I'm a sinner. I've given up. And if it were by myself, I would have given up my faith. And I would have lost my salvation long ago. We know that we are completely dependent upon God for His grace and for His goodness and for the salvation that He has given. And God uses our sins to cause us to see how weak we are. So that we learn not to put our trust in ourselves. So that we realize how dependent we are upon His grace. God uses your and my sins to cause us to look away from self and to look to God, who alone is able to keep and to preserve us. It's not of Him that willeth. It's not of Him that runneth. It's of God who shows mercy. The Lord God, Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God, keeps us by faith. Faith is the bond that unites us to God. And God gives that gift of faith by which He unites us to Himself. And by faith, He gives us then the joy, the confidence. He gives us the knowledge of that salvation, and He keeps and preserves us in the enjoyment of it. God doesn't keep us safe by tying us up, securing our legs and our feet, securing us in tall walls like a jail, so that He keeps us then from doing anything that would be contrary to his will. God doesn't keep us safe like a mother might do with a pack and play, putting her infant or her toddler in that pack and play so that that way it doesn't fall down the steps. It's kept safe and protected. God keeps his children by implanting faith in our hearts. God preserves and keeps us by establishing a bond between us and himself giving the gift of His Spirit to us, by which that Spirit, as the Spirit of liberty, exposes sin and directs us to lean on Him and to put our trust in Him. God keeps us not in some mechanical manner, but through means of the communion of His love and of all His benefits and of all of His blessings in Jesus Christ. And God gives us that eye of faith then, so that, We're able to see the dangers and we flee from them. He gives us the ears of faith so that we hear his word and we find comfort and strength in it. He gives us the faith to believe that word, to trust in him, and to find our confidence 
in His promises. The fruit of faith is that we commit our soul in well-doing to Him. We cast ourselves on Him. We acknowledge we can't do it of ourselves. We are weak and we are sinful, but we put our trust in Him. Faith doesn't trust in the flesh. Faith doesn't put confidence in our works, in our abilities. Faith reaches to the living God. And faith shows itself in committing our soul to God. God is the keeper of our soul. He's the one who from eternity has chosen me. And He's the only one who's able to preserve and keep me in the midst of this world. When our faith is weak, we're not going to be looking to Him. We're not going to be committing our souls to Him in well-doing. Then we're like Samson when his hair was cut. You children remember that story. When Samson finally allowed Delilah and the wicked Philistines to cut his hair just like that. His strength went from him. And now he was weak. He couldn't stand up against temptation, and neither can we when we're not walking in that closeness with God, not walking by faith. Then we're not walking according to good works. We're pursuing our own lusts, our own ways, our own will. But God in His grace doesn't allow His children to continue unrepentantly in that way. God strengthens our faith. God restores us. He moves us to confess our sins. He gives us to know the renewed strength that is ours by His Spirit. And even as Samson, as his hair grew back again, God gives us to know that our strength is in Jehovah. He will preserve and He will keep us. And faith then casts ourselves on Jehovah. He will preserve me. He will keep me. I don't lean on my own strength. I look to God. And I look to His faithfulness. That's the admonition here of our text. As we come to the end of all things, and as we get closer to that end, all the more the urgency is that we look to Him. He alone is able to preserve and keep us. Strikingly, we commit the keeping of our souls to Him according to verse 19. The word soul here has to do with ourselves. It includes the whole of our being, our body and soul. And Peter here is speaking of the need then of entrusting the whole of our being to God and to the power of His Spirit by faith. Our ears, our eyes, our mouths, our tongues, our hands, our feet, everything is committed to the Lord for safekeeping and for preservation. We will fall into temptation. We will suffer. We will respond in sinful ways. At times we will sin against our persecutors even worse than they perhaps sinned against us. But God gives us to know our sins. He gives us to confess them. And He turns us then by His grace. God calls us to commit the care of our souls, our bodies, our lives, our reputation, our property, our children, our relations, all to Him. With the understanding that He may require of us that we have to part with all of that. That we have to give it all up. The trials and the temptations that we face may well mean that we have to lose what property we have and even our own lives. But our bodies, our souls, are safe in the hands of Jehovah. We commit our way to Him, who alone is able to keep our souls and preserve us to the uttermost. 
Now, the saints are encouraged to do that by the consideration that God is a faithful creator. The last words of verse 19. is creator. He's also the recreator. Not only did He create all things, He recreated us in Jesus Christ as new creatures. Through the wonder of the resurrection, He takes that which was dead and makes it alive. And as His workmanship, He recreates us unto good works that we might show forth His praise. The one who alone is able to preserve us and to keep us is the one who is our Creator, our Redeemer, the one who sustains us. And He's the one who preserved us through the events of this past year. He's the one who brought us through the struggles and the difficulties. And He is faithful. His faithfulness is on the foreground here as faithful Creator. How is that faithfulness evident with regard to creation? God not only created all things, He continues to sustain it. According to His providence, He continues to govern the whole of the creation so that everything is upheld and maintained by His hand. If He were to step out of the creation, everything would fall apart. But He is faithful. He will not step out of His creation. He maintains, He preserves every aspect of His creation for His own glory. He's taken us as His possession, His property. And the Bible is full of comparisons. If He's going to keep the birds, and He's going to maintain the lilies in the valley, how much more me? How much more you? Those for whom He sent His own Son. He is faithful. He who pledges His love and His care for His church and for His children will do so. He's not just a creator, he's a faithful creator. And he's faithful to maintain his covenant to all eternity. That's the encouragement that we face as we come to the close of another year. Is the way going to get easier? Are the days and months and years going to become better and easier for the church of Jesus Christ and for the saints? And the scripture's testimony is frankly no. The way is going to get more and more challenging. More is going to be required of you. Wisdom is necessary. But as you go forward, here is your encouragement. Commit your way, not to yourself. Then you'll falter and fall. Commit your way to your faithful Creator. He knows and has ordained the way. And He will preserve and keep us in it. There's an urgency to that. And that comes out in verse 17. The time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Now again, it's hard to understand what he's talking about here. What does he mean? Judgment must begin at the house of God. The judgment that he's speaking of here is not the judgment that will come upon all men at the end of the world. That's not the idea here. Peter here is talking about judgment in terms of suffering. He's talking about persecution. The time has come that judgment that is suffering and persecution must begin at the house of God. God is the judge over the whole world. Yet the suffering and the afflictions begin with his own family. Now a father may have many things over which he exercises his control. But his hand of correction begins with his own children. They're the ones who are the objects of his love and his care. And so he's going to begin chastising them out of love. 
Peter's referring here to that chastisement from our Heavenly Father that comes upon us as God's children. Now he's talking about the intense persecution that was breaking over the church and which would test the faith of the saints. In the previous verses, 12 and 13, he talks about, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye that are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye also may be glad with exceeding joy. This suffering would be most intense in the sphere of the church. And we understand that. God is not executing his chastisement on the world. He's directing it toward those whom he loves. And therefore, it's those whom he loves that he corrects. This chastisement then begins at the house of God. God's punishment is being unleashed on the world about us. Judgment for God's church and God's children begins in suffering and in persecution. And that suffering is found among God's people while they're in the world. The wicked, for the most part, have prosperity. The wicked are allowed to live their life, often with ease. And that gives occasion for temptation. We have the psalm, Psalm 37, Psalm 73. The psalmist looking at the wicked and becoming envious of the way of the wicked. It seems as though they have so much. It seems as though their path is so easy. Whereas, I suffer. And the temptation then to say, the suffering's not worth it. Why don't I just give up on God? Give up on the church? Give up on the things of God's kingdom and pursue the way of sin? Loving Heavenly Father will not allow His children to be lost. He preserves and He keeps them. And He uses the means of suffering and persecution. The house of God is a language is, is yeah, language that's often used to refer to the temple at Jerusalem. The ch- and the temple at Jerusalem was a picture of the family of God. And so the house of God, the family of God, using the phrase to refer to Christians enjoying communion and fellowship with the living God. God, their Father. It's a beautiful picture, that of God taking us and bringing us into His family. And now as our Father, guiding and directing the course of our lives. Those who obey the gospel confess themselves to be members of the family of God. God has taken us into His family. And God is at work. He's refining us. He leads us through the refiner's fire. It's painful. There's suffering. God takes from us loved ones whom we cherished. God moves us through sickness and through troubles. God gives us healing mercies, but also complications at times. He leads us through sins, through temptations, at times severe. Consequences even of our sins that have an impact on our loved ones. God brings us into situations where we have to stand for the truth. And when we stand for the truth, we lose our jobs. There are co-workers that are alienated from us. We bring mockery and suffering and shame at times on ourselves. The church is expected to endure such suffering. It begins within the church. 
But then in connection with that, we have the startling phrase, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Verse 18. If the righteous, and this is the idea, if the righteous endure such intense suffering, and if God exacts so much out of them, what about the ungodly? What about the sinner? Their judgment is going to be all the more severe as God isn't motivated by love for them. In other words, if this is the way God deals with those whom He loves, wow! What can we imagine is going to happen upon those who are the objects of His wrath? Proverbs 11, verse 31 expresses a similar idea. Behold, the righteous shall be recompensed in the earth, much more the wicked and the sinner. Now what does he mean here if the righteous scarcely be saved? We need to emphasize the righteous will be saved. Every last one of God's children will be saved. Righteous there being a reference to God's elect, those who are righteous in Christ. Some use this text as a possibility of the righteous falling away and being lost. Not one of God's saints will be lost. That's the emphasis that we find throughout Scripture. Every last one of them will be brought to repentance. None will perish. The salvation of God's church is sure. And that's the emphasis again of Peter in the speaking of the wonder by which we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God, kept by God and by His power through faith unto salvation and all of the rest. God preserves and God keeps His own. And He brings every last one of them to the knowledge of their salvation. So that the doctrine of eternal sovereign election makes our salvation sure. And that's our comfort. Christ has purchased His sheep with His own blood. And through the blood of the elect, every last one of them are declared righteous. So that our righteousness isn't a righteousness that's of ourselves. This righteousness is in Jesus Christ and through His atoning blood. It delivers from wrath and it brings us into everlasting life. The righteous surely are saved. What about the words of our text then? The righteous cannot be saved by their own works. The righteous will not be saved by their own suffering. The righteous are saved in the way of tremendous difficulty, tremendous sorrow. The scarcely here applies to the severity of the suffering that will come upon God's church and God's children. The way that leads to heaven is a way that leads through this world. And it involves tremendous sorrow. God gives us pictures of it in the Old Testament as the Israelites wandered through the wilderness. A picture of their passing through this world to the Canaan, the heaven that God had ordained. The way is hard. We are sinners and sinful. We murmur, we complain. This life is a continual death as our baptism form states. And you know this, and so do I. Sometimes, again, we cry out to God. We say, why? Why, Lord? Why so hard? Why so much trouble for me and my family? Why so much pain for the church of Jesus Christ? We press on, believing our Heavenly Father holds our lives in His hands. And He has ordained every aspect of that suffering. None in vain all of it serving a purpose that He has before ordained for His glory and for our good. Everything necessary for salvation. 
But the way is even more severe. The way that leads to heaven is the way of God's wrath. It's the way of everlasting death. Not only is there no possibility of there being salvation of ourselves, the only possibility was that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, opened and paved that way. He walked the way of sorrow and pain. He took upon Himself the horror of the wrath that God poured out upon Him for all the sins of His people. The cross of Jesus Christ is proof that the righteous are saved in the way of tremendous sorrow and judgment and pain. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As he was despised and rejected and afflicted, God received his perfect, obedient sacrifice. And as those who are found in him, we also now are afflicted, persecuted, hated in the midst of this world. But by grace... We overcome through the cross and through the victory of the Spirit of our risen and exalted Savior, Jesus Christ. Scarcely saved in the sense that that salvation is impossible of ourselves and it's possible only through a wonder of God by which our Lord Jesus Christ came and accomplished it on our behalf. That suffering and pain that we endure as Christians in the midst of this world as we proceed through this life is so intense that if it were not for God's grace, we would all perish. None of us would last a moment. And that's the emphasis that Matthew 24, verse 22 makes as it talks about the end of the world and it talks about the persecutions that are going to come upon the Christians. God states that the salvation of the elect will be possible only because God will shorten those days for their sake. It talks about the fact that If it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. But it's not possible. So the only possibility of our salvation is the fact that we are God's elect. That God has before chosen us and that He keeps and preserves us by His own hand. The people of God are saved and kept as by fire. The course of this life, difficult and challenging, joys but troubles. John Calvin equates this life to sailing and navigating a ship and avoiding all of the rocks. And the fact that there's all these rocks that constitute a threat to our spiritual well-being. And then there's the winds and the storm that create tremendous threat. Adversity a rock, prosperity a rock. But God guides the ship of His church by His sovereign hand so that she's not shipwrecked. She's preserved and she's kept. And he's our pilot, leading us to that safe haven of eternal rest. That's the wonder of the grace of God. And that's the wonder of the salvation that is ours in him. Judgment coming upon the church of Christ. Suffering ordained by God. But God using it all for her preservation and for her salvation and for her good. And that we celebrate as we look back on this previous year. God has been with us. He has kept us through trials, through sufferings. We've not been shipwrecked. He's been the one who's in the boat, 
preserving and keeping us by His grace. And He will bring us to that safe haven. By faith we lay hold upon His word and His promises. The wicked face the sure judgment of God. And the wicked face that punishment that comes upon God as it comes upon them in the midst of this world. The wicked rejoice to see the suffering of God's people. They celebrate the hardships and the troubles that the church endures. But that rejoicing is short-lived. The wicked are destroyed with an everlasting destruction. And what shall be their end? Where shall they appear? Everlasting damnation in hell. And that's the contrast here. Yes, there's suffering. There's trouble for the church of Jesus Christ. But she's held by her faithful Creator. By faith she lays hold on Him. And He leads her through to the eternal rest, the haven of rest. Whereas the world and the wicked perish everlastingly in their sins. There's peace then. And that peace God gives us by faith. As God keeps His children in that peace. As God makes His children ready for the trials and afflictions that will yet come to pass. As God gives to us wisdom and as we teach our children and lead our children and as our children grow in their understanding, God preserves and God keeps and prepares them for challenges that they're going to face that are unlike anything we've ever experienced. But God will make His children ready and He will keep them and preserve them no matter how severe those trials and afflictions will be because He is faithful Creator. He is the one preserving and keeping them by His everlasting hands and according to all of His divine attributes. And so we go forward. And we go forward with our children and our children's children with knowledge. Jehovah, He is my faithful keeper. He will supply all my need according to His riches in Jesus Christ. I can face death with confidence because I know my life is not in my hands. If that were the case, I'd be doomed. My life is not in the hands of my family. It's not in the hands of the church. It's not in the hands of Mother Nature. My life is in the hands of my faithful Creator. He who is Jehovah. He who is my God who loves me in Jesus Christ. And I leave it in His hands because He is faithful and He is sure. And He will guide and lead me in a way that is for my good and for His glory. And God gives us peace. God works in us the faith by which we trust in Him. God works joy. He works happiness. And He gives grace to endure those trials. To continue even in well-doing. As verse 19 points out. Committing the keeping of our souls to Him in well-doing. Now the persecuted Christians who knew the mercy of God had to continue in well-doing. They had embraced the gospel. They had denied themselves. They were walking as pilgrims and strangers in the midst of this world. And the pressures were intense. And again, the temptation is to give up. It's not worth it. Forsake Christ. Leave the faith. Turn one's back on Christ's church. The apostle says, no. Press on. Commit the keeping of your souls to Him. Lay hold of Him by faith. And do so in well-doing. That is, press on, pursuing His will 
and doing that which is right and pleasing in His sight. Living in subjection to Him in every area of your life. As we've been taught here in First Peter, in the realm of the government, in the realm of society, in the workplace, in the realm of marriage, submitting our way to His will, living our lives in holiness, consecrated to Him, separated from sin. Beloved, by God's grace, that's what we've sought to do. We look back at times and we wonder, how did I ever have the grace to endure? How did I ever get through that hardship and that difficulty and that trial? Jehovah is faithful. There are times when we look back and we say, will I ever have the strength to continue? Where's the fruit sometimes we say of all those difficult labors as husband, as wife, as father, as mother, as teachers, as pastors, as elders? Has God used it for good or has it been all in vain? And there are times we're tempted to say, that well-doing, that labor was in vain. It didn't serve any purpose. We ought just give up. There's no use to it. And again, no, look to your faithful Heavenly Father and persevere in that well-doing by holding fast that confession. Beloved, we give all glory and all praise to Him. He alone is able to keep you and to keep me. And as we go forward on another year, we do so with peace and with joy and by hope, a living hope that God works in our hearts, enabling us to know that we face an uncertain future. But we do so without needing to be anxious, knowing that the one who is the keeper of our souls is our faithful creator. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, preserve and keep us. Thou hast been with us, and Thou wilt continue to go with us going forward. The ways are challenging and difficult at times, impossible for our flesh. Our sins are gross, serious, and severe, and we despair at times. But grant, Lord, that we might know Thy sovereign love and Thy care in Jesus Christ. That we might know the power of Thy Spirit and the wonder of faith preserving and keeping us in the enjoyment of our salvation and the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. Amen.